happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 140 on June 26, 2019. I am co-host Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus. And joining me as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Jason. I am glad to be joining from Oklahoma City on the final day that I can say I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School because I am now pivoting to a new academic role. So looking forward to a couple uh, days with our daughter who is doing orientation for her new college, University of Central Oklahoma. They've got a nice program called Forge. They told us to leave our Oklahoma State and OU colors behind as we come. So I thought that was appropriate. We are Broncos now, except they spell it Bronchos. That's more information than you needed. But anyway, I'm glad to be here and I will actually be offline uh, on assignment in a mysterious location off grid for the next two weeks. But I hear rumor that you may keep the show going at least um, in two weeks, but probably not for the 4th of July holiday week. Yes, in light of the birthday of America, which also happens to be my wife and I's 15-year anniversary next Wednesday or next Thursday, uh, we having got married on the 4th of July because both of our parents got married on the 4th of July, and so we couldn't really? that coincidence oh, and wow. had to do it. So 15 years ago, next Thursday, on a cold and rainy day up on a mountain in Clancy, Montana, my wife and I... Um, tie the knot as it were so uh we will be taking next week off uh in celebration of america and more importantly 15 years of wedded bliss so um but that that's the future i want to talk about today and this is the edtech situation room we are a weekly podcast that goes through the tech headlines and tries to put a little educational spin on there wes and i are kind of nerds from probably similar points of view pedagogically, maybe slightly different points of view technologically, and we want to kind of go through the week's headlines and see what is up. So, Wes, I want to kind of pick up on, on something that we discussed briefly in last week's episode, but you and I, are, are we've been given our notice that our virtual broadcast room is going away. And my understanding um, is that you have some alternatives, but I would like to point out uh, an article from 9to5Google that talks about the technology that Wes and I use to record our podcast every week, which is referred to as Hangouts on Air, is officially going away. And we received our notice last week pre-broadcast, um, and uh, we're pretty disappointed to hear that that, Otherwise, rock-stable technology will no longer be with us. And uh, YouTube and, and Google have not really pointed towards an alternative for our use case. Uh, apparently, they have been telling people you can go to YouTube.com slash webcam, which is actually something that um, I know works because I've played with it before. But you can go there and kind of do what we're doing now. If you've ever seen the video of, of the, the podcast, but in essence... Um, you can just broadcast from a single webcam. Um, but of course, with West being in the Midwest and me in the Rocky Mountain West, uh, that is not going to work out so hot for us. So, uh, Wes, you did mention that there were some alternatives, perhaps, that you found that might be able to do something similar to this in the future. I have done just a little bit of research, and I will start by just saying I'd love to know if anybody's seen an article or has a theory about why this is happening. Like, I I don't know if other than, I guess, maybe Google's not making money on this. And so just like they do with other products, they ditch them and, you know, make the users, you know, really bummed out when the, when the product is gone. I, I don't know. I don't know the reason for this. But as is the case with, you know, one door closes, another opens. I'm sure we will be learning more about live streaming options. I will say it's just been remarkably wonderful. If you hearken back to the you know mid 2000s and late 2000s with um, EdTech Talk and the Webheads and ways in which they had to literally have a class that people would go through to run these different programs, Soundflower and all these things to to route your your audio streams. It's just it's been a dream to have something so drop dead easy that has been very reliable. But um, a couple of weeks ago when we were having difficulty. We did jump into a Zoom conference, and unfortunately, that wasn't live broadcast. 
there's not that many people that are actually tuning in live, but it's so cool to do that. Um, and we do encourage you, if you're watching live, to join our chat room on YouTube, and we will try and monitor that to give you voice. Uh, but the, there's an option for Zoom. However, it requires basically a 40 no, $55 a month investment because you have to pay for a pro account, which is $15 a month. And then you also have to pay a $40 a month add-on for webinar, which, you know, gives you like a hundred people or something. And anyway, I don't, I don't think we're going to pursue that option. Like Jason and I are kind of cheap and I just don't think that's, that's probably our path. However, there are some free options. And if we want to stick with YouTube, we could do this too. There's some software called open broadcaster software and that uh, software acts as an encoder. Now we can go buy something too, like Wirecast, which is for the Mac, but it's about 250 bucks. And what you end up doing is configuring advanced features uh, inside the Hangout. Well, actually, I guess the Hangout's going away. So let me scratch that. I, I wouldn't, we would not be able to continue using Google Hangouts at all. So this, this would be, um, I guess, a Facebook live streaming option. Um, and, and I think there's, you know, It'd be a different audience that could potentially join us on Facebook. And I think I will look into that. I mean, hopefully they're going to give us a date when this thing is actually going to go away because it just right. like later this year. But I would hy- hypothesize that, you know, uh, later in the summer, early in the fall, um, this would be a good thing to experiment with. So I'll do some more research about that. And if anybody listening has any experience with that, it appears to me that open broadcaster software is something like Wirecast, but it's free and your computer acts as an encoder and then sends that video stream out to, in this case, Facebook uh, for Facebook Live. Uh, so that, I think, would allow us to host a multi-person call, but... I'm not completely sure of that. And I also don't know what Jason, you know, one of us would need who is not hosting the call in order to be sending our stream. I'm going to guess that we would need to both be running open broadcast or somebody's the host and then somebody else is sending the stream. And then the host takes both of those, you know, sends them to Facebook. So if anyone has experience with said advanced features of, live webcasting from your kitchen, basement, dining room, whatever the case may be, let us know. And we will be learning more as we seek to continue not only producing the show, but providing a live connection option for it. And the other thing I would note is that I think other EdTech broadcasts or EdTech podcasts also use the same technology when they're located in different locations. And there's lots of fancy things you can do to record a podcast um, you know, uh, the 5x5 network has a lot of good tutorials on recording podcasts. And what they do is they do it over Skype, but they also record locally, and then they splice together the high-quality local recording together to create as high of a possible uh, uh, quality recording. But that, of course, takes a lot more post-processing. And uh, one thing that, that I've been very lucky uh, uh, to, to be able to boast is that uh, – my um, very awesome co-host does all of our, our post editing uh, and posting the podcast, and that is that that takes you know an amount of time, even with our fairly elegant workflow to do that. And it's just sad that I think you know it, this may not be a technology that that is used by you know even a, a, a small minority of users. It's probably a minute minority of users. It, it's valuable, and there's just no nothing else in the marketplace any any way like this. Uh, something I just realized, and I'll reach out to him. Uh, so shout out to Paul Allison and the Teachers Teaching Teachers uh, group, and then also EdTech Talk. I mean, I mentioned EdTech Talk. They've been around, I would say, forever. No, it's yeah. like this all started in the mid-2000s, edtechtalk.com. <clears throat> but they are also, um, by the looks of it, you know, using Google Hangouts regularly for their broadcasting. Uh, and this was a, a group connected to the Webheads and uh, Cheryl Oaks and Alice Barr and, and other very innovative people who, you know, were doing this live before I, before I had tried, I, I did, you know, lots of offline podcasting prior to it. So it'll be good to reach out to them, see what their plan is, uh, and find out because, um, you know, it, it's certainly possible. We've, we've talked about, you know, joining a network. We've talked about, you know, how we might try and monetize or something like that. Um, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll explore that, but we're definitely going to have to explore an alternative to the Google Hangout. 
So it will be good, as always, to reach out to our digital network, our PLN, and find out what other people are planning to do. And hopefully Google, I mean, it just, it seems so crazy for Google to take away this kind of power, right? I mean, this yep. is an incredible power to to be able, and I, I mean, I guess it has something to do with the virality of their platform and unwanted content, but this is the first time, actually, I think I've seen Google do something that is really reducing our ability to publish and share. And I, I think I mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, it is so challenging when we look at the, um, the issues surrounding um, offensive content, inappropriate content, uh, weaponized, you know, disinformation. There's all kinds of terms for these things, but basically that, you know, there, there is a line out there. I think everyone uh, who's rational can agree. It is, it's not great for a terrorist, you know, to be live streaming their, their shooting or their, their blowing up uh, bombs or, or whatever. I mean, wherever you are on the political spectrum, hopefully we can agree that, you know, there are some things that are, that are beyond the pale. And so we can debate where that line is and how that line gets decided. But it is just so challenging today um, because of the way that, you know, platforms, especially the, the big ones like YouTube, like Facebook, um, have this potential for virality. And that potential was not there in the mid 2000s when, as we called it, the Web 2.0 interactive web, you know, really took off. And, and we started writing on our blogs and we started podcasting, et cetera. You know, that is a, a different environment. So, Jason, how do you view the tech correction today? What is your, you know, crystal ball and 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 how optimistic or pessimistic are you <clears throat> given, you know, what has happened or not happened surrounding regulation and responses to a lot of a lot that's been happening with our bigger platforms? I think the 2020 presidential election is going to be absolutely critical in two ways. The first one is that if we can manage to get through that election and not experience similar things to 2016, and I want to be super clear that I do think that Russia meddled in the 2016 election. I think the evidence is overwhelmingly clear. I don't know if it swayed the election. Right. I think that's something that, uh, uh, you know, even though I, uh, you know, may have not liked the outcome in 2016. The super bottom line is, is that I think there are a lot of factors beyond Facebook uh, that impacted that particular election. But I would like to get through 2016 and not experience similar doom and gloom that we experienced uh, uh, during the last cycle around. So 2020 is critical. I also think that it is a referendum on technology from the standpoint of regulation. And uh, the first of the Democratic debates, our first two big Democratic debates are happening my puppy is literally trying to chew up this roll of whiteboard tape or whiteboard, sticky whiteboard stuff. Like he just had this in his mouth. By the way, I have a new puppy. His name is Louie and he is delightful. But man, does that dog chew. Um, and now he's chewing up a map of Montana. So it's <laughs> it sounds like we need a few bones and a few other legitimate, more, yeah, more yeah. legitimate options in that. He actually ate a Kong yesterday. And for dog owners, you know that's something impressive to actually chew through a Kong. So um, he's now he, actually good. Eat the map. Um, it's it's good distraction for him. So he so the other uh, the Democrat first Democratic debates are happening this week, and there are candidates that are much more aggressive about not just regulating technology. I think every Democratic presidential candidate has a view on on the government should take more action on regulating technology. Elizabeth Warren wants to break up big tech using antitrust law, and she's got some supporters in that wing. And there's another wing that's a little closer to Silicon Valley that doesn't believe in that. But I think the tech, tech correction, uh, which is is going Going to happen and it is happening. We're in the midst of the text correct tech correction. The end game there will matter a lot on who's elected to Congress in 2020 and who ends up in the White House. And um, it could end up that I don't know how you do this, but we could break up the big ones. We could break up Google. We could break up Facebook. We could break up Apple. Um, we could break up Netflix or uh, one of the media companies. That's all I think in the realm of possibility. But, uh, I, I, you know, it's something we have to keep an eye on. And also, 
please become an informed voter on this. Like, not everyone shares, I think everyone's got a view on this, but the in-game realities may or may not be something that you're ultimately interested in. So you should absolutely take the responsibility of um, you know, knowing what the candidates want and you do a good job of vetting them to make sure they are doing what you perceive to be the right course of action here. So absolutely, I think that's all very much a, a pretty huge factor here. So. Well, I, I went ahead and uh, copied an article I don't think we talked about, but I had in the show notes a couple weeks ago, and I just put it in below our Geeks of the Week because we don't really have a tech correction topic today. But uh, this was a Politico article from June 10th, 2019. It was titled Newspapers Embarrassing Lobbying Campaign. And um, I actually heard about this on my, my Google Home, I think listening to uh, Reuters News or maybe it was NPR but goodness gracious, uh, given the opportunity to basically whine and, you know, argue for uh, regulation, um, the newspaper industry uh, sees the opportunity to uh, beg for an antitrust exemption it thinks it needs in its fight with Google and Facebook for advertising dollars and basically to, um, you know, try and use regulation to, uh, to, you know, take money away from Google and Facebook and try and save the journalism um Industry, And I do think that journalism is hugely important. Um, I, I do think that we need to be making a greater public investment in journalism. I think the UK via the BBC, um, you know, continues to produce phenomenal content. And I think that there is a sizable uh, government investment that they have in that. Of course, we have public television and there is some uh, public funding in terms of governmental funding for that. But I think a lot of that. Pardon me, comes from, you know, individual donors and and things like that. That article says that currently Google and Facebook collect 73% of all digital advertising. And so that is, you know, a a, a real stark number. Um, But I definitely, you know, it's sad. It's sad. It's just sad to to hear, you know, this kind of, you know, let's use regulation to try and, um, you know, just... I don't know. It, we, 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 need, we do need journalism to um, survive, and we need high-quality journalism, and we need local journalism. And the dynamics that are happening right now with respect to just, hey, let's let anybody who wants to buy anyone do that, get as big as they want, and then fire as many people as they want. And, you know, just those patterns um, are not wonderful. So I do think that there is a place for regulation. But Boy, it is it is super challenging um, to see how that needs to to play out. So, and I don't know where where do we have discussions like that in our society to you know discuss and debate the proper role of regulation? It seems like in the mainstream media, you know, people are too busy screaming at each other and then having just crazy things. You're like, really, this is a headline? Really, you know, we're we're saying this? I don't know. It just doesn't seem like we're having that opportunity for reason, discussion, and debate. So Right. Well, and you look at the, the hearings that are going on, it's not much better. I mean, the part of the problem I think that, that I, I have with, you know, uh, allowing Congress to, to decide this without experts in the room is that it's clear that, that, that the men and women of Congress generally don't understand how the Internet works. Yeah. And um, they're, they're not able – they just don't get that, that advertising – you know, does run the free and open internet right now. That's that's a reality that we're in. And I'm not saying that that reality is a good thing. It's just the situation that that has developed in the past 20 years. And that actually inspires, there's a really fascinating article from uh, uh, Recode and Vox on June 24th. Uh, It reports that the cost of an ad-free internet for the typical user would be $35 a month. And so if you wanted to we wanted to find a scheme to have you pay a single amount every month and have that information uh, or have that, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just laughing at my silly puppy. Um uh, have that inf- or have that money then go to people that are uh, indeed keeping track of, of of content for you so that you can no don't chew on my don't chew on my chair. Um the um uh, it would cost users t- typically about $35 a month because that, that's what's being generated off of the typical user's data across the free Internet sphere. And, uh, I, you know, that's not a lot of money. Uh, in fact, it, it, it would be less than what most people pay for Internet access every month or cell phone service or all the ways they maybe get on the Internet. So it's not that wholly unreasonable of a concept. But 
I would say, though, how do we set up that scheme so it's fair? Obviously, the majority of that data trade right now is from the big companies. I'm speaking of Google and Facebook. And I don't think all of us would be okay with, you know, uh, $22 of our 35 going to, to Google, for example. So that's all something we'd have to work out in the wash. But our data is worth X amount, and that amount is creating a massive economy that is 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 thriving. And we, we may not like the result of that, but make no mistake that that's absolutely a factor that's making this uh, a complicated discussion. Absolutely. And that is one of the things that we need to – uh, figure out because not only can we not today uh, see our data that has been collected in this opaque cloud that is over all of us um, in terms of you know corporate collection of data, the ways that we go to um, CVS or Walgreens and you know put in our our uh, phone number or email as far as frequent you know um, customer and, and anyway, all of our purchasing data, all that stuff gets collected. We can't see it in the same way that we can see a credit report. Uh, we need to be able to, to see that data, to access that data, but there needs, we need to address this idea that that data, you know, is worth a lot of money. Um, I'm going to do a shout out to an article that is actually a, a couple years old. This is from June of 2016, but it links to this idea of uh, voters and you know, elections, and then who is deciding. Um, Jason's point that, you know, it's pretty clear that many members of Congress don't really understand how the Internet works. Um, uh, Richard Dawkins has an article or had an article uh, in Prospect Magazine, which is a U.K. publication, and it was titled, Richard Dawkins, Ignoramuses Should Have No Say on Our EU Membership, and That Includes Me. Uh, and if you're not familiar with him, Dawkins is a real outspoken advocate for evolution. Um, but what he's saying in this context, and he's a Brit, is that like he didn't know and doesn't know enough about politics and economics to make a really good decision on whether or not Britain should stay in the EU or to leave. And so putting these kinds of things up for a vote is really ridiculous. And I have not read I mean, I'm only I'm like less than 50 pages into this book by Israeli historian Yuval uh, Noah Harari, and it's called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. He's he's really a materialist and really thinks that we are all just our biology and chemistry. But there is a, there is undoubtedly, I would say today, uh, a greater ability for marketers and those willing to pay to hack our brains and be able to get us certainly to be upset and angry at each other, but also to potentially, you know, sway our vote when it comes to an election. So to Jason's point that the 2020 presidential elections in the United States are going to be really pivotal. Uh, my segue or connection to what Dawkins said there is I really think that we need to take a look at our, our, uh, uh, representative democracy, right? We have a model that says we know every citizen can't understand and study every single issue. So what we do is we elect people whose job it is to study the issues and understand, you know, the different complexities and then make these decisions on our behalf and to vote. And so the whole idea of putting things to a plebiscite, basically, where, hey, let's all vote. I mean, we've had that happen in Oklahoma with different things. And now, you know, we're not a recreational marijuana state, but we are whatever is just below that uh, with CBD. And I have friends of, of family members who, you know, have seizures. Well, actually, a friend here, too, who who has a child, uh, an older child now who, um, you know, those those are miracle drugs that do great things. But it's crazy that we've we've had these kinds of legal changes and you know it's it's basically a situation here in Oklahoma I think where if somebody spends enough money on enough billboards and enough clever advertising um you know then then people go for it and it's it's just really not great governance so i think we need to find ways as i said for us to be having debates and discussions on these kinds of issues i think technology can and should play an important role in that but i don't think we're there and i think that um you know, we've got a lot of work to do, let's just say, in the realm of citizenship, democracy, and, you know, how we're going to make our system and hopefully, uh, you know, have have even better outcomes. 
when we're living in this hyper-connected world with a, you know, 24 seven media cycle and, and the potential for, you know, viral content and everything else. So my wife and I watched, uh, we didn't finish it, but one of the the Star Trek movies the other night, you know, and just like, how are we going to get there right into this, what appears to be relatively, um, you know, I don't even have to know the right word, but like a good government that is, you know, providing and, you know, not, not just ripped apart by, by uh, extreme voices and, and all that. Obviously that's science fiction, but you hope that we're going to be able to somehow make our way to a better political environment than we are today. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a lot of politics for today. Do you want to talk some more Chrome news? I saw you have a lot of Chrome OS articles tonight. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on in Chrome world, and I, I want to start off with um, what I think is a real game changer for the Chrome OS. And I had read about this a couple of months ago, and I didn't really understand what it was. And as it turns out, Chrome OS version 75 dropped this week, and it appeared uh, across my Chromebook architecture because I, I have multiple Chromebooks in my life. And now that I understand it, it is unbelievably cool. So uh, about Chromebooks on June 22nd reports this. And the idea here is that you have always been able uh, for the last, I don't know, two, three years to mount other cloud-based file systems. So obviously Google Drive works amazingly with um uh, with Chrome OS, right? But if you are, if you have OneDrive, if you're on a Microsoft campus and you have OneDrive or you use Box.net or uh, you use one of the, 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 the hundreds of other cloud providers, it's you have to go through a web interface to access that. And one of the elegances of Chrome OS is the fact that you can easily navigate through your Google Drive like you would on a Windows machine with the file system. And, and it, it's, it's, uh, great to be able to do that, but it's hard to access other systems. And there was a wonky way you could download software. They opened this up a couple years ago, but the plugins were not super great. They crashed a lot and they came from third-party providers. And so I remember the OneDrive one, I finally got to work. Uh, I do a lot of OneDrive work with my work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education and it would just crash randomly. Oh, it was from Japan. So the the instructions weren't in English and uh, while I trust generally the Japanese, I don't trust developers, uh, uh, and I always thought I was putting my data at risk by doing that. Well, here's how it works now. So if you uh, get into your, your, your Chrome OS account and download the Android app, let's say for OneDrive, and sign into the app, it will now mount the OneDrive file system like Google Drive in the Files app in Chrome OS. So today, as an example, I did that. I got onto my personal OneDrive account and was able to stream music from my Chromebook from OneDrive. It works with Box.net, which is a, a, a property of the University of Montana, the big Box.net users, and so I can mount that. The only major one it doesn't work with right now is Dropbox, which is sad. I also have a Dropbox account. I keep it mostly because all my old teaching files are in there, and it allows unlimited uh, going back into history. So I've actually a couple of times dug around files I thought I had and ended up they were deleted and, and held in kind of a, a purgatory that exists on, on Dropbox, but my guess is they'll head there too. But if you are a Chromebook user and you're like on a college campus that's super into uh, Office 365, you can now mount Office 365 by simply downloading the Android app, signing in, and then it automatically mounts into the file piece. There's a flag you have to turn on to do it right now if it's not automatically happening, but it is super cool, and I was able to get it set up in about four minutes today. And shout-out to Kevin C. Tofel, who is the author of the website that hosts that article, and, and, that, and he is the one who wrote that. It's about Chromebooks.com, <clears throat> and he said in the article that when the Chrome OS 75 version hits the stable channel, uh, that's just going to be there for everybody. You're not going to have to do any flags or, or anything. So cloud storage is hugely important. I was helping one of our former employees um, who came back to school for some assistance with, you know, some of these issues and talking about whether it's Dropbox or it's Google Drive. Um, I am pleased to report that more of our faculty and staff than ever are saving all their stuff all the time into the cloud. And so the days of, oh, man, I didn't back that up, 
uh, or, oh, shoot, you know, my, my system, you know, either, either whether you're doing a sneaker net kind of USB thumb drive or, you know, people can be set up for automated kinds of things like that. Um, but yeah, when you just, you, you save in the cloud and it's there, I mean, um, if anybody's had that experience of, of losing data, um, that can just, you know, can be very catastrophic. So I think it is a good thing that these integrations are coming. And uh, how long, Jason, have you been Chromebook only? Um, have you been keeping track? Um, I would say I was moving in that direction probably 12 months ago was when I brought my uh, Pixel book. And then um, at work, it's been the last six months. And now, I mean, I, I do remote into a Windows box occasionally, mostly to do FTP work to pull down backups from our LMS server. But other than that, it's been pretty much 100% of the time. I'm on a Chromebook right now broadcasting tonight, uh, today, very busy week at the Digital Academy, weirdly busy week at the Digital Academy for a summer summer week, and I was in several conference calls today. I had a, several productive meetings. I had a couple of parent phone calls I needed to deal with and was Chrome OS the whole time, and I just love the elegant simplicity of it. And, and I have to admit, I don't really use Android apps that often. Um, I have one Android app that I have uh, on my work profile that allows me to stream music from OneDrive, it, it's called Cloud Player, and so I have all of my old MP3 collection and playlists on OneDrive, and so I can stream my own music at work, but otherwise I don't really use Android apps. I'm using straight-up Chrome OS, and it's amazing. I've just been really, 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 really super happy with it and hope that continues into the future. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'd like to also talk about a, a Google article, but this one is related to media literacy. So this was from TechCrunch on June 24th, 2019, and the title is Google's New Media Literacy Program Teaches Kids How to Spot Disinformation and Fake News. So among my new roles for this next year, <coughs> pardon me, I will be teaching all of our fifth and sixth graders their semester course, which they take on computers. Uh, and that will basically be not only including uh, keyboarding, but digital digital literacy, media literacy, and digital citizenship. And so this um, program that Google has launched is basically, it adds on to what they've already had, which is their Be Internet Awesome uh, program. Um, but they have a um, section now that has these six new media literacy activities. And so their acronym there for keeping safe is to um, smart, alert, strong, kind, and brave. That's what being internet awesome is. Sharing with care is internet smart. Don't falling for fake. And this is the new part is internet alert. Uh, internet strong is securing your interests. Being uh, internet kind means it's cool to be kind. And then internet brave means when in doubt, talk it out. I think this is just a fantastic curriculum. And so I'm gonna definitely be using um, some of this. Their second lesson, don't fall for fake, has these six activities. Subtitled, Don't Bite That Fishing Hook, Who Are You Really About These Bots? Is That Really True? Spotting Disinformation Online. And then they have this, uh, I guess it's a game simulation called Interland. Uh, and this one's called Reality River. So there's activities for, for Interland on each one of these. But great curriculum, great resources. And, and by the way, we need to have some agile curriculum when it comes to technology in our schools. I remember just a few years ago, it wasn't that long, maybe it was five years ago, um, you know, working with a local group that wanted to really get WordPress and content management systems into schools and, you know, face a lot of difficulty because Dreamweaver and, you know, HTML and just the ways that things have been done in the past, it was hard to, to make a shift. And I don't really actually even know where that is today. Um, I, I, in Oklahoma, our vocational, um, you know, education, career tech is what we call it, uh, is definitely, I think, our best funded K-12 educational um, institutions. And so I, there's a lot of innovation that is happening there. But anyway, in, in our schools, no matter what size or shape or flavor, uh, it's important for us to maintain agility and flexibility with respect to our curriculum that involves technology. So kudos to Google for coming out with this. And I will also mention that I will be headed the third week of July to the wonderful state of Rhode Island for the Media Literacy Institute that is hosted by Renee Hobbs and the Media Education Lab. And I have been 
following her work for years and years and just really, um, I don't know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens, but I'm considering the possibilities of what it would look like if I publish some articles about media literacy in addition to some books in the next year or so and basically try to set myself up maybe for um, an academic position at a university that involved media literacy. I don't know. I might end up continuing to work in the independent school world, which has been a great place to be for four years, but we shall see. Check it out, Google's media literacy program. And then a couple other quick hits from our friends at the Google this week, uh, Google Drive offline access. Uh, so for some time now, you've been able to set up uh, uh, offline access for Google Docs. And so we download the most recent docs to your, your local Chromebook or your browser for that matter. You can do this on a PC or a Mac. And as it turns out, they're going to expand that to other types of files. So we'll download PDFs or more importantly, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint documents, which can be natively uh, modified now by Google Drive. So that's an interesting piece. And what I'd add to that, because uh, our librarian talked to me about this this week, be aware of file extensions. Without a file extension, um, many programs are, and many computers can be clueless as to how to handle their files for, I don't know how long, you know, Microsoft Windows by default has hidden the file extensions and you had to, you know, go in and, and explicitly say, I want to see those extensions. And Mac kind of has done the same thing. Um, you know, you can still change them, but uh, this is something that's really important. If you're using Google Drive specifically, um, make sure that you preserve file extensions because if you don't, when you rename files, then you're going to have a confused computer when it tries to download that file and it's like, what the heck is this? I have no clue, you know, how to handle it. So that's a good little tip for everyone. And then one other, a couple other quick hits. Uh, Google has announced that they are abandoning their tablet projects, which, to be frank, is pretty sad to me. Uh, it, that doesn't mean that uh, that other Chrome OS tablets won't appear in the marketplace, but they won't be Google uh, uh, Google design and Google sponsored. I've always thought that the, I, I've not bought one yet, and, and all bit one of the reasons why that's the case is because I felt like they were too expensive for what they were. But I assumed that over time they would go down in price. But I love the notion of the 10 and 11 inch. Uh, a Chrome OS tablet model because it gave you the full web browser experience in addition to Android apps. And I think that the new uh, uh, iPad OS that's coming out uh, uh, to add to already pretty solid pieces of hardware, I think Apple's going to eat Google's lunch on this and continue to dominate in that market where I think Google could have been um, headed in, in an interesting direction there. Man, this is huge, huge news, right? We, we pivoted on our Chromebooks at school a couple of years ago from uh, Dell Mini 11, which is just a standard, or they were, yeah, yeah, they were, uh, just, a, just, you know, standard laptop, no yoga flip over and touchscreen or anything like that, um, to the Lenovo 300E, which is a touchscreen and you can use a regular number two pencil as your stylus. Um, I did not play with that. Um, much at all in the last year, but the promise of that, you know, with a stylus and being able to use that natural input, that just seems so, so important. And so for Google to dump this is huge. And I, um, I really am going to be interested to continue to follow this because in terms of the future of computing, you know, we're probably going, I would guess, and I'm not speaking for our school, and this is just West Fryer's opinion as, you know, a guy who happens to work at the school. Um, I think that we're going to be looking real seriously at one-to-one -one for our middle school at least next year. Uh, and we've got a lot of Chromebook carts, you know, currently as well as, a, you know, smattering of iPads. I want as a teacher and I want as a learner the opportunity to, you know, not only consume and, and obviously get content, but create and, and, and make content uh, not only with my fingers on a keyboard, but also with my voice using speech to text technologies, which I use all the time. Um, even like writing Facebook posts now on my iPad. And I just, I use that all the time, but being able to draw and write, I've had a chance, you know, in the last couple months, I just with a couple new teachers this week, introducing them to the iPad and an Apple Pencil. Um, two of our upper division math teachers, actually, um, we had a little session in May and one of them got pretty excited and, and got approval. 
it's phenomenal, right? Like the tool set of being able to create on an iPad with an Apple Pencil, either generation one or two, being able to do stuff live, being able to record things, being able to readily take what we just did, you know, send it as a PDF to you in Google Classroom, et cetera. It's just phenomenal. So I think this is a rather shocking article. And, you know, do you think this is it over, Jason? Is Google, you know, not only abandoning their own hardware dreams for tablets, but is, is this the end of, uh, of Google OS as a tablet OS? I, I hope not. Um, I, I will say that I, I've never really been that impressed with, and I don't really understand why, like, they, they've never really supported um, uh, uh, tablets that well on Android. There is that new effort called Fuchsia OS, which everyone thinks is going to replace both Android and Chrome OS with a single operating system that is touch-focused but still has good desktop uh, cred to it. Uh, apparently, the Pixelbook allows you to install uh, Fuchsia, a, a very early alpha version of a Fuchsia on it. I, I just think that if they had spent a little more time developing, they could have been a very attractive alternative to the iPad because you still had the, the, the desktop style browser. And I just, I can't stress enough that, that to me, at least, I mean, that, that's something that could live well. I mean, I live already with a Chromebook, right? Like Chromebook is my daily carry. And if you added to that a good tablet form factor, maybe something that was close to like the Microsoft Surface, a 12 inch tablet with a good enough keyboard that, that's in that kind of keyboard cover mode, I think that could be an enormously interesting prospect. But the fact that they're, you know, going in another direction, um, that, that's sad. Uh, that said, I mean, one of the things that's been really unfortunate about Android tablets is that their their gross reputation has meant that the innovation that is happening is is almost ignored. Um, Samsung re- recently released a 12-inch, um, a 4x3 tablet uh, that runs Android that is a beautiful, high-definition screen. It is super thin. I played with one at Costco a couple weeks ago. It's an eight, $900 tablet, but it's utterly beautiful. It's bright screen. It's, it, it, you can get a keyboard cover for it. That's pretty solid, but it, it's kind of in the who cares, right? Like I know, in fact, I, most of the, the Google OS people that I'm sorry, Chrome OS people, I know they're super in the Google system. If they want a tablet, most don't, but if they want a tablet, they carry around iPads with them because the battery life, because of the stability of the operating system. And I know Google just can't seem to, to get its act together in that particular space. Uh, something that Kevin Toffel, also the, the author of this uh, article, mentions is that he's still seeing references to flapjack devices. And flapjack is a evidently um, a follow-on uh, OS tablet that is expected to be in an 8 or 10.1-inch size, he says. And so if that's not going to be from Google, then maybe that's going to be from a partner. So, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think... The dream of a, of one device to rule them all uh, is a, I think it's a uh, you know what am I trying to say a fall when it's a false path or something like that like that's not I, I don't think that you're that any of us are, are would be happy with that at this point um, you know I mean I'm I'm using my my iPad right here as well as my laptop and and you're not going to take my phone away from me right so uh, like it or not we are in this multi device world and. I think we're going to continue to be in the multiverse world. You're you're in the digital watch, uh, you know, world as well. So um, yeah, add add four a fourth platform, the fourth screen. Right. Well, I go back to I remember this when the EEE PCs were released. The first um, uh, what were those things called? Uh, the the oh, little the, PCs. Uh, oh, yes. One one laptop per child. Uh, the the first of those uh, the tiny tiny PC movement. I mean, the only people that I ever saw carrying those were nerds, like like Wes and Jason variety nerds that had that at the side of their laptop, right? Like it was like a second laptop they were using. In fact, I remember it was either NCC or was ISTE. I can't remember. This was 2009-ish when the EEE PCs were super popular and were starting to become the 7-inch variety was, was the early popular one because it was so cheap. Couldn't really type on it. The screen was a horrible resolution. It ran a version of Linux that was basically unfunctional. But, you know, here was 30 
five of them in the crowd, but no one was using it as as uh, like no one had it out by itself. They had it in addition to their laptop, and I, I still think we're going to fight form factors here. And remember, phones are getting bigger every year, right? That's part of the reason why tablets have not really taken off like one might assume is because you know the the newest phones are six point two inches. Remember, the tablet form factor that first caught on was a seven inch tablet. So we're not that far away from having phones be big enough that they could sub in for a laptop easily in a pinch. Yeah, it's going to be exciting to see what happens with uh, um, with this, with Safari being fully functional as a desktop version on iPad OS, and and to see that. Um, I want to hear you talk, if you don't mind, uh, in a minute here about the uh, Apple Watch article, but I'm going to throw one in real quick on privacy. So I think this one was was one we didn't get to last week. This is Wired on June 16th. It's time to switch to a privacy browser. Now, I'm going to start off by saying it is so hard to change behavior. I wrote a blog post this last week about how important it is not to let your credit card out of your site when you're at a restaurant. Um, and tonight, my wife and I kind of went out and celebrated the uh, the last uh, tech director night or, or day or whatever. And uh, I actually asked my our server, "Well, can I can I go with you as you run this card?" It felt awkward. It was weird. Um, we get into our ruts, and we don't want to change. And so I to you know, segue to this article about a privacy browser. I really don't want to change my browser preferences, right? I love Chrome. Um, I still run fire, have Firefox and Safari every once in a while. And, and it's really been a security thing lately, like with our phones and stuff, there'll be certain um, links and, and that I just can't open on Chrome. And then on Firefox, I can add an exception and be able to get to that. It's usually like a, an HTTPS connection and, it just thinks it's suspicious. Um, but this is a really good article uh, from Wired, uh, from Casey Chin, and talking about privacy protection and the way that, you know, there's been some discussion about whether what's going to happen with Chrome. I think you said last week they backed off and maybe they're going to still allow uBlock Origin and some of these other ad blockers to function on consumer uh, browsers. Um, but Apple has really been pushing privacy um, across its d- devices, you know, not just on, on one device, but uh, Safari is really fast. Talk to Ben Wilkoff. He says that is the browser to be using. Um, Chrome looks like bloatware compared to it. Um, Firefox is is super, super fast now and has enhanced uh, tracking protection in there. So this is saying that we should consider using a privacy browser, using something like DuckDuckGo, uh, using Ghostery, which is a a browser extension available for Android or iOS, um, or using something like Tor. If we want to talk about geeks and a small number of folks, uh, not that many people are running Tor as their daily driver browser. Uh, Brave is another project, which is interesting. I, I haven't actually run this one, but a uh, former Firefox developer with Mozilla, uh, Brendan Eich, E-I-C-H, um, created it. And its mission is to is to keep you from being tracked on the web, but also find a better way to serve you ads. So they're, anyway, trying to, to work that out. But uh, I think this is important. You know, it's certainly vital uh, from a teaching standpoint for us to try and prevent the intrusion of advertisements into the classroom by running some kind of, uh, of web of, of ad blocker. And, um, you know, I just cringe when we have meetings and this doesn't happen that often, but it has happened before where somebody's showing a YouTube video and then here comes the pre-roll ad. And then I was like, no, they didn't, you know, they don't have uBlock Origin put on their, on their browser. So where are you today, Jason, with privacy browsers, and or privacy extensions, and what what would you say your exhortation is to the the thousands of technology leaders breathlessly waiting to to hear your next statement? Where, where do you think schools and tech leaders should be with respect to all this now? Uh, you know, I think the problem is is that that we have to find a way to deal with the, the tracking and the advertising and the cookies and not break the functionality that is also relying on the same technologies. And as an example of this, the article we mentioned earlier about uh, $35 being the approximate amount of money per month that's raised on your data, um, one of the things that article points out is that, you know, we could have our phone stop tracking our location, but you know what? Apple Maps and Google Maps will both become dramatically less functional because of that, right? Like, the bottom line is, is that... Um, 
those technologies also provide benefit for us. And so I, I, I did figure out, uh, I think I had mentioned this a, a couple of episodes ago, I did figure out how to install Firefox on Chrome OS. There's a, a Linux version of, of Firefox, and you can turn on Linux and installations on uh, your computer and or your, your Chrome OS device. And so I've got Firefox at work. I use it for the same way you do, Wes, that I'm on one browser. It's not working the way it should. I want to test it in Firefox. Um, and, uh, uh, so I do that and I'm able to, to, to figure those pieces out, but I, it's not that I trust Google, although I do, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the implicit bargain here. And I think I, I, I mentioned this a lot in, in, um, other, uh, other contexts, especially when I'm giving presentations is that, you know, if Google, Google gives you privacy controls, like basically no other service does, right? Like every service is tracking you in some way, shape or form. Google gives me an option to go in and take a look at that data and turn in certain pieces of tracking off or even uh, disable uh, uh, the functionality completely, where uh, whereas other tools do not. And the bottom line is that uh, I, I, that's a trust relationship with me, right? So, I mean, I have two or three browsers on my phone. I always open up incognito or private windows in a browser when I'm searching for something that I don't want to follow me forever. I'm looking for a campground address and, and, and I type in, you know, campground address into Google. I don't want to be served up tent ads for, you know, the next six months. And so I try to, to do those in, 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 in incognito windows, but I've not really changed my habit there yet. And I know uh, I was going to dig up this article. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal ran a pretty controversial article over the weekend of calling the Chrome browser basically spyware, right? And there's been a, a lot of hubbub about that around the internet that uh, some people see the Chrome browser as, as straight up spyware now. But remember, ad networks are following you around anyways, right? Like if it's not Google's ad network, it's one of the 25 other ad networks, including Facebook, I might add, that's doing that. So I am cautiously optimistic that the tech correction will bring regulation that figures out at least a careful or maybe even a fumble balance with that and then it's going to be better. And that maybe is the closet optimist in me that, that says that at some point we got to work this out, but it just, it seems like too much is at risk if we just start tearing these, these pieces apart without any meaningful thought of what, uh, what we do next. I will say, I think we need some privacy protection that's written into law. I think California has the most progressive laws right now in terms of privacy uh, and Europe has, has led the way with that, um, for, of course, that's, that's debatable, um, whether or not, you know, the right to be forgotten and these different, you know, laws are necessarily wonderful and great. But I'm interested and continue to be, uh, from a digital citizenship and advocacy standpoint and student voice standpoint. Um, I do think that our, our students, just like citizens of all ages, need to care about privacy and understand its importance. Uh, we need to act to protect it. And I think we also need to understand these dynamics where basically the evolution of technologies um, has become a wonderful thing for authoritarian leaders who want to really restrict and keep you know, close tabs on their population. Um, think about the, the social rating system now that's in place in, in, uh, certainly the Western provinces of China, if not the entire country. Um, and also for corporate marketers that always want to know more information about folks so that they can market better into the mass of humanity out there and increase their profit. And so what, where the line needs to be drawn in terms of both of those groups. And I think also, how we as a liberal democracy here in the United States should look different than let's say, um, I would say communist China, but just like China is just a different animal um, than, than the communism any of us studied in school. So whatever that is, um, you know, we, we with, with the values that we purport to have, uh, we should be advocating for some different policies, both at a governmental level and then at an individual level. So I think those are very important and relevant topics for us to grapple with, not just as citizens on our own, but also thinking about, you know, students in school and becoming aware of these issues and trying to hopefully educate student leaders who are going to move into society and positions of leadership and be able to have intelligent conversations and debates about these topics so that they can understand what it is they're contemplating, you know, regulating or shutting down or changing.
Absolutely. So, any uh, last articles you want to get before uh, Geeks of the Week? I, I want to point out one that's probably not worth a longer discussion, but uh, uh, there a lot, a lot of media reported this. But nine to five Google mentions that uh, in a recent interview, Bill Gates said that that his biggest mistake in his time at Microsoft was allowing a mobile uh, operating system or the the mobile operating system to 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 float away from Microsoft. The fact that they uh, started late to the transition to smartphone operating systems and once they got there, they couldn't get it figured out and essentially just allowed Android to come in and, and suck up the oxygen that that uh, was left after Microsoft died out of that cost the corporation four hundred billion dollars. And I, I don't doubt that um, I was a I was closely following that the entire time just because it was such an interesting story. But the bottom line was that, uh, you know, there was Apple and they figured some stuff out and Android, you know, somewhat copying Apple figured out a second place in the market that eventually became the dominant market leader. And Microsoft was late to the party. And because of that could never get off the ground uh, from a market standpoint. So very interesting discussion with Bill Gates about the the loss of the mobile race uh, to Apple and Google. And that whole video is available on that article if anybody would like to check that out. That looks like a great one to, to watch. So, all right, Geeks of the Week, I'll go first. Uh, mine's quick. I had a teacher yesterday that I visited with ask or show me on her phone. Her son is at camp, and this app uh, used facial recognition to find her son in every photograph that had been taken by camp staff anywhere, even photographs that had, like, 50 people in them. Hey, there he is. And so that was both cool and creepy at the same time. So the app is called Bunk One, and their uh, Twitter is Bunk One Camps. And I think that's a bit of a sign of the times that we're seeing that kind of surveillance technology being used apparently to please parents who want to see what their kids are doing. But it also just kind of shows where especially cloud-based storage and analysis of photographs and video is going. And, you know head out to Western China and check out what they got going on there if you want to see where we potentially could head with ubiquitous surveillance. Dun-dun-dun. Well, I can't top that, but uh, just a quick reminder that if you are on Twitter, uh, it really pays to follow uh, hashtags of, of things you're interested in. And as an example of this, Google Calendar went out, I think, I can't remember if it was before last week's episode or after last week's episode, but Google Calendar went out uh, for uh, almost a whole day uh, recently. And luckily, I literally, uh, I, uh, it still worked on mobile, so I was able to, to make sure that I could get my appointments. My whole life is planned out in a personal and a work Google Calendar. But uh, I, I posted a snarky, um, a piece of information about it on Twitter. I asked, or I, 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 I supposed that because Google Calendar was out, it meant any meeting that was on Google Calendar was clearly canceled for the day. So, um, and I used hashtag Google Calendar, and uh, on an odd, uh, in an odd click, I, I clicked on the hashtag and looked at other information about that, and I kept that. And over the last week, uh, following hashtag Google Calendar and also hashtag Google Slides. I learned a bunch of stuff about those two tools, including a bunch of services and tools for Google Slides that I did not know existed before. So as a reminder, if you want to really embrace whether your thing is OneNote or it's Google Classroom or it's Google Slides or it's Microsoft Word or you're still kicking around in Lotus 1, 2, 3, uh, you can find other people that can probably provide you some information to help you learn that tool better. Yes, experience the long tail yourself with a quirky and not often trending hashtag. And that is an amazing thing. Jason, inquiring minds want to know the map, which all of our viewers who get to either see the live show or see it later, you know, are constantly looking at the state of Alaska is covered up. And if the 720p, maybe 1080p version of our video is working, I think I'm seeing coordinates perhaps for a drone based scavenger hunt. You know, do you have a good, good rationale there for the Alaska covering. I, I don't. I, I would say it's because I don't like all day day or all night night, but uh, 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 it's just that that's where the magnet In fact, it's actually it's actually a little tip I could provide. Uh, the way this is hanging up on my wall is I, I learned this on the internet is that um, so these are these are big circular magnets that you can buy on Amazon. They're super cheap. But the way I hang up stuff temporarily in both offices in my home is I take masking tape and I, I, I tape a, um, this is a, a big paper clip to the wall, right? 
and then I take these circle magnets, and then that's how I hang up stuff. So that I, if I, you know, decide I don't want it there anymore, I just take the masking tape off carefully, and then I can move the posters around. So I learned about that a couple of years ago, and in fact, I recently had to move offices, and all the posters that were hanging up are, were there that way. So all I had to do was just carefully remove my masking tape by slowly rolling it, and then I left no marks in the wall, and I was able to to, to change things up on there. So there another tip from the tech savvy teacher. So, Absolutely, another reason to always. Stay to the end of the show because you never know what life hacks are waiting for you in the EdTech Situation Room conclusion. So Wes, where can people find you on the internet? Well, for a couple days, I'll still be tweeting at W Fryer and I might schedule some posts for the next couple weeks, but if uh, those appear, they will be on speedofcreativity.org. And what about you, Dr. Neifer? I am on Twitter at uh, Tech Savvy Teach and blog at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. Hey, stay tuned because in uh, one week's time, we're going to start featuring some E-rate information. Um, and if your district is not taking advantage of E-rate, NCC offers uh, E-rate services. But more importantly, uh, we will be helping educate the public on funding that your school may be missing out on if you don't take advantage of E-rate. This whole thing here, though, is not E-Rate. It is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast each Wednesday evening at 9, I'm sorry, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central. Uh, it's either 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. UTC, time zone, daylight saving, something, something, something. Uh, you can always see us live. We t- try to tweet out the link to that uh, at our Twitter account, EdTechSR. Or you can go to our website at techsr.com, and there you can find our show notes. You can find a link to every article we talk about on the show. And usually you can find another 20 links that we don't get to in any particular week's episode. You can also download our podcast there or wherever fire podcasts are aggregated, which includes the Stitcher radio app. It includes Pocket Cast. It includes uh, the Google Podcast app. Um, although you can't currently ask for us by name on the Google um, uh, Assistant, or has that changed, Dr. Ferris? Mine is working intermittently, and I've continued to receive feedback, uh, direct messages from the Google Nest team, which is the Google Home team, and I think they are addressing it. So give it a shot and let us know uh, if it works for you. But I have been able to have that work a little bit in the last week. Okay, awesome. And if we don't see you on your Google Home, then we hope to see you on the next episode of the Antic Situation Room, and we bid you stay safe, stay savvy.